On the last episode of Obscene, I touched on myths because they expose the inner workings of a culture based on the stories being told. Of course, we must pay special attention to who is crafting the myth and what their objective is. America has many myths. A great many of them are an attempt to soften, subvert, or ignore the jagged cutting edges of our systemic racist and misogynistic past that continues to hemorrhage discrimination into our present. More often than not in America, myths are often used to reinforce policy that works for the few, but that hurts the many. Today, I'll address a myth that deeply cuts at the over 39.8 million Americans currently living in poverty, of which 12.8 million are children. The pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps myth. I'll have Dr. Jessica Young, assistant professor in the Department of Health Studies at American University, explain. Uh, So we have definitely uh, discussed poverty in a way that places the blame on the individual and criminalizes their state of of economic well-being rather than examine the forces that have led to some people living in poverty or some populations having a higher risk of living in poverty compared to others. I think the focus on individuality in um, the United States is is strong. And we have a culture of, you know, you need to pull yourself up from your boot, bootstraps. You need to work hard and, and don't do drugs and, and don't become a teen mom. You hear all these messages around what folks believe prevent poverty, but you don't hear about the systemic forces that even if a person follows all the quote-unquote rules and plays the game as they are told there are forces beyond their control that shapes whether or not they're going to end up living in poverty or living in a high poverty area so for example we there's this narrative that education is the pathway to economic and social success and so now you have a a whole lot of young folks who have gone to school, who have gotten their degrees, who entered the workforce in you know the year that I graduated was was 2008, right? And they played the rules and, and did what they were supposed to do, but many of them are now living in poverty or living in high poverty areas because of economic forces beyond their control shaping their destiny. And I think that as a country, you know, I don't think we need to completely leave our our celebration of individual work ethic, things like that. But I do think that we need to begin to understand that the social forces that shapes people's lives are real. You know, too often you hear people discount uh, the social forces that limit opportunity for folks. You hear about the story of the one individual who made it out the hood. You know, they they focused, they worked hard, they got a scholarship, and now they own a multi-million dollar company. That's great, but that was that one person's experience. And for some reason, our society values that person's experience over all the stories of the thousands of people who tried to have that experience but didn't because of some social force or another. 
like poverty or like being um, uh, enrolled in low quality schools or their communities just never recovered from the recession. So they didn't have an opportunity to um, get a job that would pay them a living wage or that would help them sustain a, a what we think is a middle class um, or what we idealize as a middle class life. And so, you know, moving away from the focus on individual work ethic um, and pulling yourself up to your bootstraps, I, I think our discussion needs to move away from that and towards who has bootstraps to pull up in the first place and why do other people not have those, those same opportunities. With one stroke of the pen, uh, President Nixon has broken his own promise to support child development and he has greatly damaged the chances for the children of working families as well as poor children to have an opportunity for the kind of healthful and stimulating development which the president at one point in time pledged his administration to support. This is episode two of Obscene, Why Nixon Killed a Child Care Policy That Could Have Upended Poverty in America. Let's talk about poverty. Let's talk about struggling. Let's talk about all the homeless children that shouldn't be. Oh, God, that got depressing fast. And I'm not just talking about my singing. First, a definition. Since we're about to jump into a discussion about child care, I wanted one of my guests to briefly define and discuss a program that has helped millions of children in poverty. It's called Head Start. If you're not sure what that is, I'll let my friend Suki Graves tell you. My name is Suki Graves, and I'm an expert in early child care and development. My specialty is infant-toddler group child care, including early intervention for infants and toddlers with disabilities. And for about 39 years, I worked in many, many roles in the field of early care and education. Um, currently, I'm a consultant, but my ultimate um, job before I retired, semi-retired was with the United States Department of Health and Human Services in the Administration for Children and Families. <laughs> I was a program specialist in two different offices during my time working for the Health and Human Services. Um, first six years, I worked for the Office of Head Start, and the next six years, I worked for the Office of Child Care, primarily with tribal child care. Um, and prior to that, I worked with federal contractors that gave training and technical assistance to those programs. Part of my career, I've served on several national advisory committees um, related to those programs. Uh, Head Start is... Um, a comprehensive child development program. And by comprehensive, I mean it's not seen as strictly education. It's seen as um, making sure that the child and the family is a two-generation program. It was part of the war on poverty. I understand you have an expert on the history of it um, that might speak to you later, but um, it has been around for a long time. I think uh, I think Dick Cheney might be one person who's consistently voted against reauthorizing it, <laughs> but it has bipartisan support, and it was intended for children uh, of, grow, born at a disadvantage economically and, and or ch children with disabilities. So in order to qualify for Head Start at the local level, uh, families have to live below the federal poverty guidelines, which is pretty low. Um, and Head Start has evolved over the years with um, has very high standards. The comprehensive Head Start performance standards include um, family development, you know, helping the family to um, 
achieve goals apart from um, the development of their child, as well as health, nutrition, mental health, and other um, services, making sure all of those services are available for the child so that he is or she is capable of learning. Ms. Edelman, I just want to quote you a statistic and maybe and, and ask you to, if you can give me a reason why this is happening. Over a six-year period from 1979 to 1985, the number of children living below the poverty level has increased by 2.5 million, whereas from 1969 to 1979, a 10-year span, the number of poor children only increased by 0.5 million. Well, I think there are a number of reasons for this backwards move. We were in a period of economic recession, um, and I think that affected many additional millions of families. Um, and um, for the first time, two-parent families, and many of them two-parent white families um, with children. Um, secondly, our federal government, rather than expanding safety net programs to meet the needs of families at a time of crisis and economic downturn, responded not by increasing Medicaid or increasing food programs or increasing unemployment insurance, but by cutting back on the programs that would help families in a time of need. Thirdly, you know, there has um, been an extraordinary um, change in the family demographics with the growth in single parent households and with again with our special concern the growth in teenage parenting which um, exacerbates um, child poverty but again as usual our policies and responses tend to lag far behind need and again that has contributed Four, we've seen the wage base decrease. This Congress has not increased the minimum wage since 1979. So again, in a time of economic downturn, families were working hard to try to keep up, um, couldn't, and their wages were not adjusted for inflation. And one of the things this Congress is going to have to come to grips with is the fact that young families are having a very difficult time forming because of the, of the inability of young men and young women um, to make living wages, and secondly, you've got to recognize the plight of now almost 11 million Americans who are working in minimum wage jobs but who cannot lift those families out of the poverty level. The last reason has been, I think, unfair tax policies. You gave the wealthy the largest tax break in our nation's history in 1981, and the poor didn't get a tax break. Um, well, can I just correct the record when you said you? You, you, you the Congress. I'm talking generically. There are always a few <laughs> decent voices up here who um, and I appreciate the fact that these two members um, have stood staunchly for children and for fairness during all of this, but your colleagues are the majority of members of the Congress whom um, um, in, the, in the 1981 um, Graham-Rudman um, decisions, and it seems to be a mistake you constantly, I hope they can learn from those, um, but at any rate, we had an enormous loss in tax revenues at a time when we also had the largest buildup in military budget. I'm in peacetime history, and again, these misguided, in my view, priorities took very needed, scarce dollars away from investment in the needs of families and children that were greater at this period of economic recession. So I think that where we are faced now is that we really have to change directions. We really have to make some hard choices about where we're going to put scarce dollars. We're going to have to deal with um, 
uh, the military budget and with the need for increasing revenues, and we're going to have to deal with the added misery that um, our failure to invest in our children and families has wrought. But we need to talk about jobs for families, we need to talk about increasing the wages, and we need to talk about preventive investment. That was Marion Wright Edelman, founder of the Children's Defense Fund, speaking in front of Congress in 1987. It was not the first time she had testified in front of Congress armed with statistics on American children in poverty. Marion has become a lifelong stalwart advocate of children and families in poverty for over four decades. As a young civil rights lawyer, she was an organizer for Head Start. She worked with Martin Luther King Jr. on the Poor People's Campaign, and she met her husband, lawyer Peter Edelman, while he was working for Robert Kennedy on poverty initiatives. Marion had arranged a trip for her future husband and Robert Kennedy to see the faces of the malnourished in the Mississippi Delta. Marion and Peter would spend the rest of their lives fighting to pull America's most vulnerable children out of poverty. As the kids say, hashtag relationship goals. Many of you may not know that early in Marion's career, the country became tantalizingly close to achieving one of her overarching policy goals free universal child care for those living in poverty. Yes, that's right. America was once one signature away from a policy that would have helped millions of Americans have access to quality child care that included dental care, meals, mental health services, and after-school programs. It was called the Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971, and almost every parent I spoke to had never heard of it. Have you ever heard of the Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971? I don't know if I've specifically heard of that Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971. No. I have not. No, I have not heard of it. Uh, Not by that name. No, I don't think I've heard of that act. No, I've never heard of the Comprehensive Child Care Act of 1971. (laughs) So what led to this policy being drafted? Why did Nixon veto it even after it had overwhelming bipartisan support, passing easily through both houses of Congress? And why do so few people still know about it? I spoke with Dr. Jill Quidagno, the Mildred and Claude Pepper eminent scholar at the Pepper Institute on Aging and Public Policy at Florida State University, to find out the history behind this policy. I was watching an interview where you were talking about LBJ and um, about his war on poverty. And I think, to be honest, that might be a good place to start before we move into Nixon um, okay. with the Child Care Development Act, um, since, you know, there's a tee-up to these wonderful or some people don't think they're wonderful, but social programs. Um, right. The Child Development Act was a part of a whole history of being tied in with other programs during the Johnson era, so in and of itself, you can't really understand it. Yes. So, you know, why do do we have this tee up to social programs under Johnson? He obviously saw there was a need within poverty. why does this become his why does this become his priority well i think that kennedy was 
somewhat interested in the Appalachian poor. And when Johnson became president, he initially wanted to pursue that issue by uh, doing something for just low-income people and the poor. But then the civil rights movement drew attention to poverty more generally. And Johnson himself came from a poor background in Texas, and he saw the need for health care. He saw the need for programs and job training. And so I, I think he was actually very committed to it. We remember his legacy most maybe for the Vietnam War, but he did some really amazing things for low-income poor people and uh, for health care that he doesn't fully get credit for. Um, so he supported the Economic Opportunity Act, uh, which started numerous programs. And it was really an incredibly ambitious uh, objective to to try to end poverty through job training, to try to um, stimulate communities themselves to do more through these community action programs, which became the most controversial part of the war on poverty um, and which was very much tied to the failure of uh, the Child Development Act. So um, what happened with the community action programs in particular was that before that, federal money had gone to states primarily and then from states to cities, um, but they were always in the hands of elected officials. And what community action programs did was put hands directly into community action groups themselves. So anybody could potentially apply for a grant to do job training, to do child care. That's where Marion Wright Edelman came in because she uh, was very influential in the Head Start program in Mississippi. Um, and so we had all, all of a sudden all these local community groups in cities like Newark and Chicago and also, you know, in Mississippi and Alabama uh, actually having money to bypass in the south a racial state. Um, and job training programs, for instance, in Mississippi, even though all the schools were segregated, the job program, job training was integrated. Black and white trainees, mostly males, um, were trained in the same program. Um, but then in places like Newark and um, New York and Pittsburgh and other cities where community action programs were run by civil rights groups and, uh, again, bypassing the local white power structure mm. uh, and demanding more and more radical change, at least seen as radical from the point of, you know, mayors and uh, city uh, commissions. And so the, the probably the the biggest conflict occurred in, in Newark, New Jersey, where there were riots after uh, a, a program of urban renewal was 
opposed so uh, by the Community Action Agency. And so these organizations now had federal money to basically challenge everything in the, in their local communities, race, um, you know, urban renewal, uh, child care, just every kind of aspect for on poverty activated uh, women's groups uh, to some extent, although the, the, the story of the women's groups is kind of interesting and a sidetrack to all this because you would yeah. have thought they would have been at the forefront of the child care. But but they weren't. Um, we can get back to that in a minute. So sure. um, so so the the setting for whether there should be childcare came first of all then from um, the war on poverty and specifically the Office of Economic Opportunity that funded local community action agencies, um, and then it also uh, came from the rising welfare roles of which was not directly a part of the war on poverty, but indirectly so, because in the 1960s, um, what is now TANF was initially aid to dependent children. It was under the Social Security Act of 1935. It was just for children. In the 1960s, it was changed to aid to families with dependent children, which allowed the mothers of children also to get a benefit. And so what happened from the mid-60s into the 70s was that there was a substantial increase in the welfare rolls in many states that just went up by um, 200% more women receiving welfare. And so there was this uh, sort of dual push on the one hand to start reducing the welfare rolls to not have so many women on welfare. Um, but then on the other hand, you had to give them the opportunity to work. These were single mothers who had you know, very little job training and very little work experience and poor work credentials. And so, you know, how could you get them to work if you couldn't provide child care? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the child care was tangled up with the rise of the welfare rules and on the one hand not wanting to give welfare mothers anything, um, on the other hand recognizing that women who worked had to have child care, um, but then not having a lot of support for the women's movement because this wasn't their constituency welfare mothers. The women's movement was more concerned with helping women in the labor force, ending discrimination in employment, uh, in, you know, medical schools and law schools. And it was more middle class and upper class women that the, a lot of the, like, National Organization for Women was focused on. And so, uh, with the daycare, to go back to that then, for any program to succeed, you have to have movement from below. You have to have a constituency. Mm. And for for mothers, as, as a general rule, uh, aren't a, con, a, a constituency that politicians pay attention to. They're they're not mobilized for the most part. They're they're all over separate. 
places. They don't have the resources to go to meetings even at night. Um, there was a brief period where there was a National Welfare Rights Organization that was organized and really helped by Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward, two professors at Columbia University. But the movement itself, uh, you know, and the women were sitting in welfare offices demanding higher benefits and um, but that created also a backlash against them because it made them more visible. So, mm-hmm. you know, the daycare program was just one little piece of this whole big story. Why do you think it was so difficult for policymakers to see those different intersecting issues? There are so many moving parts to the story. One of the, one of we have to start with women themselves, I think, okay. because in the in the 60s, women were just starting this big movement into the labor force, and and so we saw between 60 and 70 a substantial increase of of women in the labor force, um, and so there was a backlash to that among conservatives, particularly who felt that women's place was in the home and that that daycare would destroy the nuclear family and uh, that women working would undercut jobs for men. And so, so one part of this and the opposition to daycare was that from religious conservatives, you know, in the early voice of what became the moral majority was that, that number one, this would encourage more women to work, which was a bad thing. Um, and number two, that it was a communist plot, that it would bring socialism to America, and that uh, daycare was very uh, much opposed by religious groups um, and evangelicals. Um, thought, you know, the government should. This is a, this is mother's job to provide child care. This is not something that the government should be doing. So that was that was one source of opposition and um a lot of southern politicians were part of that, but also in other parts of the country too, um politicians were, you know, members of Congress were getting uh when it, it wasn't widely publicized by the way. So a lot of people had never even heard of it, but right. um th- there was you know this this backlash to it. Uh, you know that in that chapter that you saw, there are some quotes from uh, different members of Congress. Uh, let's see. I'll just read you um, one. Uh, this was a Republican congressman, John Schmidt. It is becoming possible for a government to root out the basic unit of society, the family, and replace it with state control. A few people today must therefore be constantly on guard against such unwarranted incursions into the life of the family. So that was one one big theme. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other was the divisions within the women's movement. That that on the one hand, there was the organizational part of it that sort of supported it, but many of the women who were it now was not a grassroots organization. It was more of a bureaucratic organization that was top-down with members. 
Um, and many middle-class women who were working could afford to pay for private child care. So this wasn't their big issue that the government should be providing child care. Their big issue was discrimination against women in employment. So this was, it wasn't that it was opposed, but it was not at the top of their list. And then the other part of the women's movement consisted more of groups that were trying to raise the consciousness of women. And they were actually anti-organization because they felt like that organization supported patriarchy and that that's how men maintain power was through organization. And so they wanted more of a participatory democracy. Um, And so these were small local groups that were more concerned with conscious raising and less concerned with policy issues. So, you know, there there are two points where you could have had a lot of women demanding child care, but you didn't see that coming together in any kind of a coherent political way where it became a political pressure. Um, And then then women on welfare were, first of all, more concerned about protecting their benefits and about because there was this anti-welfare sentiment that had a strong racist tone to it, you know, the image of the welfare queens and of women driving around in Cadillacs, milking their Mm -hmm. welfare money. Um, And so they were more worried about their benefits being cut um, and not confident that if they went to work, that they would be able to find good jobs that would be able to pay them enough to support their families. Um, and so they were ambivalent. The job training programs that existed in the 60s were mostly to train men. Um, right. What training the women received um, was sometimes more of you know, how to maintain a home and how to cook how to do laundry um, and and not so much oriented towards getting them jobs and skilled labor. So so for for the women on welfare who might have been a constituency, there was a lot of ambivalence about what daycare would do for them. So the the women that probably would have benefited most from this would have been low-income working women, mm-hmm. but they had no organizational voice. Now you need a organized constituency, and, and interestingly, Nixon initially campaigned on wanting to see a healthy environment for young children and supporting the idea of daycare, and then it got all entangled with other issues, mm-hmm. and he dropped it. But it would have been a starting point that could have expanded over time, and I think that was a really lost opportunity. But right now, I just don't see any constituency for this. We have, you know, the TANF program has removed so many um, poor mothers from benefits, and there there is more daycare available to TANF mothers while they're in job training, but then that phases out 
as their income rises as they go to work. And so it's still leaving lower income women with very little support. And there's just no organized movement among women for this that I see anywhere uh, as a high priority. And so there's no pressure. Where's the pressure point for this? An organized constituency is, of course, ideal when it comes to urging your elected officials to draft policy that helps our most vulnerable. I can't think of a more deserving constituency than those born, stuck, or who sink into poverty. As Marion Wright Edelman said in a clip earlier in this episode, there are systemic reasons for poverty in our country, which is exacerbated by low wages, tax cuts for the wealthy, and cutting back of social services. I'm sure my mother would have loved to have been part of an organized constituency that fought for living wages, affordable childcare, and health care. But she was a single mother, college-educated, but a low-wage worker nonetheless with two part-time jobs to help support her three children. Like so many parents in America, this is their story. It's difficult to be part of an organized constituency if you don't have time for sleep, let alone activism. I believe Marion Wright Edelman knew this when she started the Children's Defense Fund, an organization dedicated to lifting children and families out of poverty. The Children's Defense Fund's leadership are some of America's brightest minds, like this woman right here. My name and occupation is Shamika Gaskins, and I'm currently the executive director of the Children's Defense Fund, California's state office. Um, And I have been a lawyer for about... 13 years now, um, having worked in private practice, the federal government, and now here. So the Children's Defense Fund, I will start with the Children's Defense Fund of California, um, is a state office of the National Child Advocacy Organization um, that was founded by Marion Wright Edelman in 1973. And the mission was really to advance, you know, social and economic equity. Um, We address, you know, institutional policies and practices that cause racial and economic disparity. Um, by combining, you know, research, advocacy, you know, with some signature community-based programs. So our work really focuses on ensuring that children, all children are lifted out of poverty, have access to high quality health, health and mental health care, you know, quality and equitable education and are protected from involvement in the juvenile justice system. And we're particularly um, interested in and work on behalf of, you know, black and brown children and poor children. Yeah, I think the the two, um, you know, community-based programs that we've had um, for several decades now are the first one is our CDF Freedom Schools, which is a national program that, you know, Foster works is a summer program, a summer enrichment program um, that really tries to bring together an intergenerational lens um, to bring quality, high quality summer literacy programs to to children in communities. Um, and so the program usually runs about um, six weeks. And, you know, the, the goal is really to have a model that is explicitly has an explicit race conscious framework. And so we're providing the scholars and um, the young people in the program and the educators the opportunity to read, discuss and learn about, you know, historical and contemporary 
social issues concerning race, gender, and more. And then the most important part about the program is, you know, based, it's rooted in, you know, the 1960s Freedom Rides movement, and it's about building, you know, social movement. And so the, the theme of Freedom Schools is, you know, I can make a difference in myself, in my family, in my community, in my country, in my world. And so we um, really work to empower young children to feel that sense of agency and that social engagement and that they can actually make a change um, in their own in their own communities. So another signature community-based program is our CDF Beat the Odds scholarship program. Um, and the program um, works a little bit differently across the country, but for us here in the California State Office, we usually identify about 10 sophomores um, in LA County who um, are doing well academically, but you know, often facing tremendous um, social, economic, and you know, familial challenges. And so we work with them um, to provide not only a college readiness curriculum to help them get prepared um, to enter college and be accepted into college, um, but we also work with them in terms of um, providing supports that are social emotional, helping connect them or their families to services they might need, and then also building in that component of how they can become advocates and learn about how to make change in their own communities. And we stick with them um, through high school, college, and beyond, and um, they get a financial package, a financial scholarship from us um, to help you know meet their needs and um, you know it's one of our you know really exciting programs you know one of our schol our scholars have gone on you know to complete college you know post-secondary school um, you know through become lawyers doctors and even this past year I was able to interview um, two of our scholars it's our 20th it was our 20th anniversary in 2018 so two of the beat the odds scholars one of which is currently our deputy executive director here which is pretty remarkable and amazing that she was able to go to school, you know, have a career and then come back to serve the organization. And the other one um, is a um, director of photography in the entertainment business and has been able to come back and help us do documentaries on our current students and connect them um, to the arts. And so it's really been a, a remarkable program for us. Now that you've gotten to learn just a little bit about Shamika and the Children's Defense Fund, I wanted to ask her a bit more information about why these early childhood programs are just so critical. What are the benefits of early childhood education, both economically and socially? The benefits of early childhood education, you know, are, are crucially important. You know, I think they're short-term improvements and a child's readiness for school, and their well-being, you know, which can take the form of, you know, enhanced social skills, you know, fewer behavior problems, improved language, reading and math skills. And, you know, so many young people, young children, you know, especially not school age ready, you know, don't have that opportunity to have high quality, you know, either childcare or early education preschool. Why are after school programs beneficial? School programs are beneficial because, you know, not only, especially, you know, during the school year and even in the summer settings, you know, not only are they providing child care, but they are often, you know, supportive learning environments that give young people access to activities and opportunities that they might not otherwise have. You know, in our CDF Freedom Schools that are based in community, we partner with churches, schools, other CBOs, you know, often, you know, that's the only quality programming a child may have, have the opportunity to have in the summer. Um, and we know, you know, the demands on 
parents to work. And so, you know, they are having access to reading, you know, quality books, um, you know, even after school programs that have, you know, recreational activities. So young people get exercise and get their bodies and brains moving and thinking in a different way. And so, you know, there's a long range of benefits that are really critical to, you know, a child's whole well-being. Can access to early education pull families out of poverty? Access to early education um, can most certainly help pull families out of poverty. You know, poverty is often generational, and we know that, you know, uh, poverty is the result of, you know, lack of investment in certain communities and certain um, demographics. And so when a young child um, has the ability to get access to, you know, early reading, early learning, you know, lessening the gap between pre, you know, kindergarten readiness, um, they are able to often, you know, be able to demonstrate that those benefits last long into adulthood. You know, there's been a number of studies, longitudinal studies that show that if a child has access to early education, you know, that could lead to them pursuing more years of education, you know, and often achieve higher earnings. And so, you know, really making the upfront investment will most has, has and will most certainly the studies show pay off in the long run. Did you see racism or misogyny play a role in Nixon vetoing the Comprehensive Childhood Development Act of 1971? After all, he said in his veto that um, this bill would implement a communal approach to child rearing, tying it to broad-based fears of communism. He also said that it would have family-weakening implications, um, that mothers would have to leave home for work, and that it would demean fathers? Well, I think the the role that, you know, racism and misogyny played in, in 1971, you know, really was um, the notion that for the first time, you know, women were working, right? Yeah. You know, after the, after the war, there was this notion that, you know, women shouldn't, should be back in the home. Um, and that was really, you know, stemmed from, you know, classism um, and racism in particular, um, but one of the core beliefs for CDF has been that, you know, children need strong adults in communities in order to thrive and that the government has a role in ensuring their basic needs are met. And so, you know, while we sometimes face criticism about, you know, advocating for um, poor adults by way of advocating for poor children, um, we know that those criticisms, you know, were fueled by racism and classism in particular, um, you know, back then, you know, the Nixon administration, you know, was really doing, you know, social political messaging that was showing the tensions between, you know, where the country was moving and the needs of, of working mothers. Um, and, you know, that tension was basically, you know, being, you know, stoking the fears of, you know, an anti-communist climate. Um, and so universal child care sort of got in the, got in the way, you know, and it was, you know, trying to sort of parlay those fears of socialism as a threat and, you know, and really treated the initiative um, that it would under, uh, you know, erode, you know, gender norms and, and personal and family familial responsibility, um, which we knew then wasn't true and we know now still isn't true. If the 1971 Comprehensive Child Development Act had have um, passed, that we definitely would have had a generation of young people um, that were where the studies show would have had, you know, 
potentially better academic outcomes, potentially better social emotional learning, access to quality health care. Um, you know, those things happened, but on a much smaller scale. And so I think, you know, if um, that act had have passed, um, we would be in a much better place than I think we are today. But, but again, you know, we have the tools to do it now. And so I think, you know, really it's about having sort of the will and the more imperative to make those investments for children and families. Next week on Obscene, how healthcare and welfare policy strengthen discrimination in America. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.